Welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. This program will provide the groundwork you need to advance your awareness and be involved in the approaching transformation in consciousness. Now, your host, Peter Tung. Hello and welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation and I'm your host, Peter Tung. Thank you for joining us today. The intention in these episodes is to give you insights into how the planet is shifting in frequency and vibration to a new level of awareness and how you can be part of this grand awakening. And I'm delighted to welcome to the show today Walter Cruttenden, who has real insight into how the planet is shifting in frequency and vibration to a new level of awareness. And so, Walter, you can explain to us all the meaning of my show. Welcome to, welcome to the show today. Hey, Peter, great to be on the show. There's all sorts of talk about precession of the equinox, and I know this is an area that you've done a lot of research and, and studying in, and I'm sure a lot of people know the expression but don't really understand what it means. So perhaps you could begin straight away by telling us a bit about it and, and what your understanding is. Certainly. Copernicus defined three motions of the Earth. He said that it spins on its axis, uh, which is called rotation. It goes around the sun, uh, which is called revolution. And there was a third motion that he noticed, uh, which he called libration, uh, and that is the precession of the equinox. That's where if you just stood on the earth, uh, say, look due east each equinox, you would notice that the stars, uh, say right before sunrise, aren't in the same position that they were the prior year. And over time, the equinox, the equinox will actually precess through all 12 constellations of the, of the zodiac. These are just uh, different constellations to sort of mark where you are in the precession equinox. Uh, but it, it is observable, even though it's very small. It only moves about one degree per 72 years. Uh, but it's something that astronomers are, are well aware of, and they measure exactly how much uh, the equinox processes, meaning uh, moves backwards uh, through the stars uh, each year. And why uh, we're studying this is because uh, we think it relates to a cycle. And, Peter, just as uh, you have a cycle of day and night, Due to the first motion of the Earth, Earth spinning on its axis, when we face towards the sun, you know, we're awake, we're active, we're, uh, you know, photosynthesis occurs, and, and uh, we're fully conscious. And when we face away from the sun, you know, 99.9% of us uh, tend to uh, get sleepy and go into the subconscious. And likewise, with the second motion of the Earth, that also creates a cycle. Uh, but it's not day and night, of course, it's the seasons from summer to winter and back. And same thing, it, it causes literally trillions of life forms to spring out of the ground, bloom, give their fruit, and then decay again. Others to come out of hibernation and then go back into hibernation you know, billions of other life forms to spawn or migrate in mass. And this is all caused by a celestial motion. 
in this case, the Earth orbiting the Sun. And so the ancients spoke of a third cycle, something that Plato called the Great Year. And this is uh, something we hear in myth and folklore, actually, from 30 different ancient cultures, that there is this cycle of the heavens or um, rising and falling ages. Sometimes it's called dark and golden ages that we've all heard uh, myth and folklore about. And we were taught in school that it's just a fairy tale. But there's an increasing amount of evidence that it might have a basis in fact. And it seems to go with this third celestial motion, this procession of the equinox. And that's what the ancients uh, wrote so much about in their myth and folklore. And, and what is your own interpretation of, of, of what causes the procession? Um, well, I'll give you the traditional interpretation. Uh, <laughs> Please do, and then you'll give me the, <laughs> the <yeah>. real one. <laughs> right. The, uh, when Copernicus first noticed uh, this thing, this procession equinox, I mean, he had to try to come up with a, a reason for it uh, because he was sort of, you know, restructuring the solar system as we knew it. Uh, during the Dark Ages, we had the geocentric system and with the Earth in the center, and he said, no, 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 the, the sun is in the center and the Earth goes around the sun, and he had to explain each of the motions. And, uh, but he actually didn't give a reason for procession. He just said it seems to librate or wobble. And so it was a couple hundred years later when uh, Sir Isaac Newton came along, and he just discovered the laws of gravity. And so he said, uh, it must be due to the gravity of the sun and the moon tugging on the oblate earth. The, ob the earth is a little bit fatter around the center, more, more pear-shaped than uh, perfectly spherical. And uh, so that, that was the, uh, the standard theory. But Newton's equations didn't work. And so uh, along came Jean Laurent de Alembert, who added uh, factors for torque and inertia. And that got it closer, but people noticed over the years that didn't work either. And so uh, over the last uh, couple hundred years since Newton, uh, over a thousand inputs have been added into this equation to try to make the the equation, how much the Earth wobbles, actually match how much we see when we look at the stars, how much the Earth has changed position relative to the stars. And uh, the current theory today now has over 1,400 terms, so it's just a gigantic mathematical problem. And uh, most astronomers have just said, forget the whole mess, and they've gone on to you know, cosmology and string theory and, and other things like that. Um, and so I've been looking at this here at the Binary Research Institute, and the reason is because there is an Indian astronomer, uh, Swami Sriyukteswar, who has uh, lived during the 1800s, early 1900s. And in 1894, he said... Uh, this procession, the equinox, is caused by our solar system moving around another star. And I had read that uh, many uh, 
stars have partners, so it, it's not too unusual. As a matter of fact, when Sri Yukteswar wrote this, that our sun might have a partner star uh, over 100 years ago, this was considered a rarity, that uh, stars, you know, rarely had uh, companions. Nowadays, uh, the NASA Chandra website says it appears that 80% of stars uh, are in either a binary, trinary, or some sort of a multiple star relationship. And this counts, you know, red dwarfs, brown dwarfs, all sorts of stars. And so one would expect that our sun then might have a, a partner star if other stars do. And so uh, we've researched this rather thoroughly, and we believe, indeed, it explains the precession phenomena much better than the theory where the Earth just wobbles. Uh, we do believe that gravity of the moon and sun acting on the Earth caused something called nutation, maybe a little Chandler wobble, but these are all very minor compared to the precession of the equinox uh, where the entire Earth would uh, spin around and, and effectively lose one orbit uh, relative to uh, the stars over a, roughly a 24,000-year period. So this, this com sort of companion star of the sun, then, w would be a star that our solar system actually orbits around? Yes, yes. So uh, it, would, it would go around it in roughly this... Uh, roughly 24,000-year period, spending about 2,000 years in each uh, constellation, you know, give or take a little bit. And that is, produces this phenomena where the equinox seems to go through all the constellations. And if you think about it, it, it is such a better explanation. Copernicus couldn't think of anything other than the Earth wobbling because he had just established that the sun is at the center of the universe and the Earth goes around the sun, for him to then also say, oh, by the way, the sun also moves, would have just been further uh, heretical. And, <laughs> right. And in Newton's time, they didn't know that the sun moved, so he had to come up with very complex equations to try to explain why we see the stars move across the sky, you know, relative to the equinox. And... The last 50 years, more and more people have said, well, gee, it does appear that everything out there is moving, so possibly the sun moves. And indeed, if you use that in these equations, these equations work beautifully, and all the errors cease. Wow. So we're actually coming up to our first uh, break uh, in a moment, Walter. This is a fascinating discussion. And when we come back, I want to ask you what, what your uh, research has led you to believe about what this other star might be in terms of uh, recognizing it as a star that we know. But um, this, this really puts a, a new slant on everything, doesn't it? Really appreciate it. It's Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. Extraordinary. Seventh Wave Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. 
Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenterJourney.com for more information. The new home for visionary positive change. 7th Wave Network. Listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tong. I'm having a fascinating discussion with Walter Crump today who is talking about the procession of the equinox and the belief that there may in fact be a second star that uh, our solar system is orbiting around. So Walter, just, just continue with this fascinating discussion. And obviously my question is, do we know or do you think we know what this other star is? Well, there's a lot of different scientists that have uh, uh, sort of contemplated this idea. And I, I should say it's not mainstream, but it's not uh, totally off-stream either. Uh, there's, some, uh, there's a scientist, Richard Muller, at uh, University of uh, Berkeley, University of California at Berkeley, and he's uh, thought that our sun might have a companion star. Uh, Whitmire and Matisse at the University of Louisiana think that it might explain why uh, comet patterns are unusual uh, and that the Kuiper belt has a sheer edge. And Mike Brown at Caltech uh, in Southern California, who has discovered the, uh, the dwarf planet Sedna and a couple others, uh, said that Sedna cannot be in its place without something perturbing it or something else keeping it where it is. And so he also uh, believes that there might be some big mass out there, such as a companion star or a, a large tenth planet or something. So there, there are people uh, looking, and, I, and most of them, uh, Peter, are looking in the dark end of the spectrum uh, with the belief that if it was a really bright star, we would have known it by now. Therefore, let's look for something like a red dwarf towards the galactic center where it would be very difficult to see, or a brown dwarf uh, that's you know, possibly very faint and, uh, and quite distant. And, and difficult to see, and uh, and I even talked to some scientists at Stanford uh, who said they had some unusual information coming out of their uh, gravity probe B uh, space probe program, and they thought maybe there's a black hole in the neighborhood, you know, a star again uh, that you it's almost impossible to detect, uh, and so. There's people looking for these types of scenarios, and I write about this in my book, uh, Lost Star of Myth and Time. But I'm kind of more interested in what the ancients were talking about. Very wise. (laughs) (laughs) 
And it's fun, too, you know? Yeah. There's a, a great scientist, Giorgio De Santiano, the former professor of the history of science at MIT, and he, along with his uh, co-author, Hertha von Deschen, uh, wrote this book called Hamlet's Mill, which uh, discusses over 30 different ancient cultures that talked about this uh, alternating dark and golden age phenomena uh, that is in sync with the movement of the heavens. And that's just sort of a, a generic term to refer to the procession of the equinox, where the stars move across the heavens. And... Uh, the fact that so many different cultures were aware of it, and these go from uh, Polynesian to Nordic to, you know, Mediterranean, India, uh, etc., uh, leads you to believe that there really must be something to this truth, that there must be uh, some, some reality in this, in this great cycle. And, and so, yes, a lot of them uh, uh, made sort of vague references uh, to another star, uh, and I would say most of those actually relate to Sirius. And, of course, you probably know Sirius is the brightest star in the sky by, by quite some uh, degree. And In fact, Sirius is the one star that you can see uh, easily during the daytime. You have to know where to look, uh, but it's, it's not difficult at all. And uh, there's some very unusual phenomena related to Sirius, but uh, just to tell you what a couple of these uh, ancient cultures said about it, uh, the Shinto of Japan, uh, which is the oldest religion in Japan, they point their temples towards Sirius, their temple openings, and they call it our second sun. Uh, one of the legislators in Japan has uh, just re recently written a book about this, as a matter of fact. And then there's the Egyptians. Uh, in Egypt, the ancient Egyptians, they called Sirius uh, Isis. And it was one of their most important gods. And whenever you see pictures of, of Isis, you often see her in association with Horus, which is an aspect of our sun, and Isis and Horus are uh, are in this relationship. Uh, sometimes, as a uh, lady and Madonna, uh, Madonna and child figure, where uh, Isis seems to be cuddling Horus, or when Horus is older, he's depicted with the sun on his head, and and Isis seems to be moving him some somehow. So. It's like they're saying that there's some relationship between Sirius and our sun. And, uh, and indeed, I think there is. You know, they, they actually uh, said that Isis or Sirius brings life and takes it away. And the way the modern archaeologists interpret that, anthropologists, is that, oh, they're just talking about uh, when Sirius rises, it relates to uh, flooding of the Nile, and, and that may well be true, uh, but it also, uh, I think it has a, a greater meaning that, you know, if this cycle is real, uh, then uh, it is driven by our motion around this other star, and, you know, Sirius would be even brighter when we're closer to it and dimmer when it's farther away.
Is, is there any actual evidence uh, for the Sirius being part of the procession in, in a different way? Uh, yes, there is, yeah. Again, sort of going off uh, myth and folklore, um, uh, there's a, a lot of people have noticed that Sirius uh, seems to track very close to the sun, uh, the sun's markers, the equinox and solstice. It, it doesn't move a long way from it, from these uh, markers. And it should, if it's precessing like all other stars, it should be moving away from those markers at roughly one degree per 72 years, or you know, the precession rate. And so there was some uh, a team of scientists in, in Canada that had uh, noticed this and uh, became suspicious of it. They're the Homans. And they set up a, uh, a fixed telescope experiment uh, looking out their basement because uh, Canada's low in the, or Sirius is low in the sky from Canada, uh, just below the equator. And so they uh, pointed it at the star, and then they took transit readings for uh, roughly 20 years now. And so the, the telescope uh, has a crosshair right in the middle. There's a uh, radio in the ground there to keep the crystal cool. It's tuned to the uh, atomic time at Fort Collins, and it, it beeps uh, and, and says the time. And so they, uh, they know, of course, right when to expect Sirius. You know, the, the Earth uh, spins around. You, you get back to that point, and uh, they observe where Sirius comes through the crosshairs. And they've noticed that Sirius does not process, uh, or we should say our Earth does not wobble relative to Sirius. And, uh, and this is, a, is exactly what you would expect if there's some relationship, that Sirius wouldn't move much from our sun. It would always be sort of on the opposite side of our binary orbit, if you will, uh, and therefore maintain its... Uh, so it would maintain its relative position to us and not be involved in the in the procession. Exactly. Yeah, it's, kind of think of it as a merry-go-round where uh, we're on one horse on one side of the merry-go-round, and and uh, Sirius is is the the horse on the opposite side of the merry-go-round, this carousel, and then every all our friends and everyone standing outside the merry-go-round are the fixed stars, and so. Sirius and us, we go around the, the center pole of the merry-go-round, you know, because we're gravitationally bound. And, and everything outside of uh, the merry-go-round seems to go by at this even rate, the procession rate. They're the fixed stars. But our relationship never changes relative to that one other star that is on the same reference frame, merry-go-round with us. That's a really, uh, really clear way of putting it. I, I appreciate that. That really, that really helps us to understand and, and get a visual picture of, of how this works. Yeah, yeah. So let's, let's uh, if you don't mind, let's go back to the great year because we, I've heard numbers um, 24,000 you've mentioned and as, as high as 26,000 years um, for the great year. Can you, can you explain the differences that I've, that I've seen different people say for the, the great year? Gladly. Um... The, the 24,000 years is what we think it will average. The 25,800 years 
is what it is right now if you assume that the procession rate never changes. Uh, but it will change because uh, any object in an orbit is, their orbits are elliptical, they must go by Kepler's laws, and so it will speed up and slow down. And I don't want to get too technical here, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's only 24,000 years is only about 7% difference from the, the current static amount right now, and I can show you uh, with a model how uh, we get there. Okay, and no, that's fine. And so the 24,000 year then is the great year, and, and it's, so it's essentially just around 2,000 years moving through each of the astrological signs and moving backwards through them. Can you just give us a quick word on, on why it's backwards in the procession? Uh, it's just what we observe. Uh, so when we observe the, uh, what do the stars do during our daily motion, just the Earth spinning? They rise in the east and set in the west. We see the sun rise in the east and set in the west, and the sun and all the stars do this. And same thing with the yearly motion. Uh, they go, uh, you know, we'll have a different constellation overhead each month as we orbit around the sun, and they'll come up in the east and go down in the west. With procession, the stars go the opposite direction. And that's, I guess, why they call it precession. Rather than a procession of stars, it's a precession of stars. So, relatively speaking, they appear to move backwards. Yeah, they appear to move backwards from from our point of view. Right. So, uh, Walter, we're coming up to our second break, and what I want to do now is is to relate the great year with the the myth and folklore of the cycles and the and the golden ages and the dark ages that you mentioned previously, because obviously, what we want to do is relate this to ourselves in the world today and use our historical understanding to help us uh, create our future as we shift back into a higher level of awareness. So uh, I look forward to, to hearing what, uh, what you have to say, Walter, after, after this, uh, this break. So this is Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. to the threshold of a dream and beyond. 7th Wave Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. Listening on a higher dimension. 7th Wave Network.
listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. just want to remind you to go to our sponsorship page, www.myheartcenteredjourney.com. And we're in a very exciting uh, moment of time at, at this stage of, of our awakening with uh, the work that I've recently done in uh, England through the sacred sites of southern England and the realization of the existence of a landscape zodiac in my hometown here of Victoria, and uh, on the show in two weeks' time, on April the 14th, uh, 5.30 West Coast time, I'm going to be talking more about the features of the landscape zodiac and what we've discovered about it. And I have absolutely no doubt at all that it ties in beautifully with what uh, Walter Cruttenden is talking about on the show today to do with the procession of the equinoxes and the great year and the shift in consciousness as we move through these different uh, ages, the dark and, and golden ages. So perhaps, Walter, we could continue, if, if you could just tell us, in fact, what is the mechanism that causes consciousness to change as we go through these different ages? Well, the short answer is light, <laughs> but uh, let me give a little color on that. Uh, so, so it's this uh, light is really defined as the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, and what we see when we look at uh, the light from the sun is just a very small fraction, not even a thousandth of this spectrum, uh, and that is visible light. But the spectrum runs from infrared to ultraviolet, and it includes uh, everything from gamma rays to uh, X-rays, you know, and everything in between, radio waves, microwaves, you name it. Uh, That's all this sort of soup that we live in, and, and we need to these elements in order to live and to feel good. And when we're away from uh, light uh, for long periods of time, there's all sorts of diseases and problems associated with this. Uh, you know, one is called uh, the seasonal disorder, uh, SAD. Um, and there's all sorts of positive things that come from light. Uh, there's new studies I was just reading about the other day about uh, how infrared light can activate heart and ear cells uh, just came out in Science Daily uh, three days ago. So um, we believe that it has something to do with light. So just as light seems to activate consciousness with the daily motion or activate just about everything in the earth with the annual motion, so too uh, is there some sort of uh, a stellar light uh, uh, electromagnetic spectrum that affects us during the great year motion. And, and we know that all stars are massive emitters of electromagnetic spectrum. So it, it could well be that as we go around our companion, uh, there's a slow waxing of another type of light and then waning of that type of light, which has uh, an effect on us that... Uh, slow so we hardly perceive it, but is dramatic uh, over the long term. And I like to use the analogy of a mayfly, Peter, to talk about this. You know, the mayfly is this, this bug that only lives for one day out of a year, 
And if it happens to be born on a uh, overcast, windless day, it knows nothing of uh, sunshine or of riding a breeze, you know. And it it thinks that that day is what all of life is like. And so it is with us. We live the equivalent of one day out of a year. That's how long our lifetimes are in compared to a great year. And uh, sure, we see a little change from our grandpa's era, maybe to our current era, but we can't imagine uh, really that the things they talked about in the golden age were actually real, and we really can't imagine the future from, from where we stand right now. And, uh, but this mechanism of light uh, does change it in some way. I'm, I'm certain of that. So, so where are where are we uh, right now in 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 the great uh, cycle? Um, perhaps you could just give us a little bit of historical um, connection to the dark and, and golden ages, and and where that brings us to at this point. Gladly, um, we're uh, roughly 1,500 years from the low point, and it's going to be. Uh, 12,000 years of an ascending arc uh, when we go towards the other star, and then 12,000 years in a descending arc when we go away from it. And uh, so that puts the low point about 500 A.D. Uh, this is according to Sri Yukteswar and, and some of the Vedic teachings. And it happens to fit our histories very, very well. As a matter of fact, if you look at... Uh, the great ancient cultures, uh, Mesopotamia, Sumer, Akkad, Babylon, each one sort of declines relative to the other. You know, they had a wonderful knowledge of uh, astronomy, mathematics, uh, advanced engineering uh, systems, uh, you know, hanging gardens, uh, ziggurats, uh, underground waterways, some of which they still use today, by the way, these ones. And then it all goes to dust. Same thing happens in Mohenjo-Daro, Harappa, in India, where they found these uh, five, 6,000-year-old cities with, built with uniform bricks, indoor plumbing and heating. You know, Europe didn't get indoor plumbing and heating back until about uh, 200, 250 years ago. Um, and it's... It's really no different in other parts of the world. Uh, China is the same way. Uh, you know, stories of wonderful advancements in ancient China, and it just got more and more brutal as it approached the Dark Ages. And uh, same thing with Americas. There's, uh, you know, our archaeology tells us that there were significant advances uh, prior to the Dark Ages. And then, you know, by the Dark Ages, the Maya themselves had sort of turned to... Uh, you know, human sacrifice and, and some before they completely fell apart. And so uh, we think that this, this fits history pretty well. And, of course, as we come out of the Dark Ages, you know, uh, we, we had a renaissance. So this awakening of consciousness first shows up in the things we do, in the things we build, in the gadgets we create. And uh, that's very apparent now, you know, as we're making more and more powerful medical devices and computers and, uh, you know, sending rovers to Mars. and uh, It's just a a manifestation of our cleverness. 
not to say we're always using our cleverness correctly, but, but I don't think you can deny that we are getting uh, smarter, but capable of, of doing more versus, you know, in the depths of the Dark Ages, they forgot how to build uh, arches. They forgot how to build sewer systems. Uh, things got so bad, it was nothing but, you know, 500 years ago, every nation on Earth fighting with one another. Plagues. So, so in terms of our emergence, then that we're we're actually just just emerging in terms of the great year, just emerging out of the the lowest point. So, although there's this uh, waking up taking place right now, there's still a long way to go till we get to the really real golden age. Yes, yeah, long way to go, but uh, things are going faster and faster. As a matter of fact, even the precession rate. Um, is speeding up each year. It's a phenomenon. Scientists don't know why that's happening, but it's just a, something that happens in an orbit. Uh, when, when one object moves around another object, uh, it will speed up when it gets closer to the center of gravity and slow down when it goes away. Right. And so how does, how does the, the age of Aquarius and the age of Pisces fit in? And, where, and where, where do you believe we are in that sort of transition between the two? Okay. So let's set the stage there. Uh, think of the zodiac as a clock, but instead of 12 numbers, we have 12 constellations. And, and Aries is at the top. Uh, Pisces is roughly where 1 o'clock is. Uh, Aquarius is where 2 o'clock is, etc. And um, whereas um, our daily clock has, you know, 12 hours of a.m., where everything's getting a little lighter. It goes from midnight to where the sun is at its highest point. That's our a.m. And then it has 12 hours of everything getting a little darker. That's p.m. And so same thing with the great year. It has an arc where uh, things get lighter and things get darker. And if you use the uh, vernal equinox, the spring equinox, just, just like I think you're pointing to in your example, uh, then the sun, which was at that 12 o'clock point, Aries 1, roughly, you know, uh, several thousand years ago, and then it hit Pisces, uh, what, about, about the time of Christ, about the year zero. Um, it's now uh, uh, still in Pisces, but at the dawning of the age of Aquarius. But the ancients, Peter, actually used the, not the spring equinox, but the fall equinox, the autumnal equinox. And that actually is a better visual in my mind because it then puts us, uh, you're looking at the bottom of the clock. And I like to associate the bottom of the clock with the dark age and the top of the clock with the, with the golden age. So the bottom of the clock, the vernal equinox, is still in Virgo, which is the very bottom sign just coming up through Leo and it'll be waking up as it does this, you know, complete left side of the clock, if you will, sweeping upward until it gets to Aries and there's, a, you know, tons of myth and folklore that has to do with Aries in the Golden Age and then it starts to go down again. So you can use any of the, uh, the solar markers, either equinox or either solstice as a marker in it, 
uh, we think the Mayan used the winter solstice. You know, that happens to be a marketing key point. Uh, but uh, I prefer the, the autumnal equinox. And I, and I, can, and I can see why that, that works uh, visually nicely. Now, mentioning the Mayans and the winter solstice, that brings us to December 21st, 2012. And we've only got a couple of minutes to the break, so you could perhaps start on that, and then we can conclude after, after this break. Sure. The, uh, of, on this clock, besides the constellations, there's some other obvious points. There's Orion's belt. There's the Pleiades. There's uh, the galactic center, which is a dark rift we see in the Milky Way when we look at it, the darkest point in there. And the Mayans uh, apparently knew that. You know, NASA didn't discover where the galactic center was till about 1970 when we had radio astronomy. Uh, but the winter solstice happens to align up with that point uh, roughly, you know, 10 years before 2012 and 10 years after. So, you know, it's a pretty darn good guess. And I think they're just calling attention sort of to a, a waking up point. You know, we're, we're like the beginning of morning. It's cock-a-doodle-doo. Right? <laughs> okay. So we're moving back into, back into the light. And therefore, the awakening consciousness that's taking place. Very much so. So it's a pretty exciting time, Walter, that we're we're actually in to to actually be consciously aware that this is what's taking place on this massive scale. And here we are, these little humans, just actually uh, being aware of this. Yeah, and I can hardly wait till after the break. We can talk about that scale, what some of the other ages are like, because uh, I don't think we've seen nothing yet. Oh. <laughs> Well, I'm looking forward to that, so we'll do exactly that. We'll, uh, we'll take a break and we'll come back and we'll talk about uh, what it's actually like to be in a golden age. We'll look forward to that. It's Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. to the threshold of a dream and beyond. Seventh Wave Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenterJourney.com for more information. Be Extraordinary. Seventh Wave Network. Listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host Peter Tong. And just a reminder. 
to go to www.myheartcenterjourney.com where we have the celestial winds at our back as we raise our consciousness and awareness and do look into the Ambassadors of Light class coming up in uh, uh, April the 14th, uh, a week on Thursday. So back to Walter Cruttenden. And Walter, I'm really looking forward to hearing about what it's like, what you know from myth and folklore about living in a, a golden age cycle. You know, just as the cup cannot hold the ocean, I, I'm not sure that our consciousness can really comprehend what it's like. But we do know uh, what uh, Hesiod and some of the other Greeks uh, had to say about it. And, and they said that it was uh, a time of peace and plenty, a time when uh, uh, mankind uh, communed with nature. Um, they said it was a time of, you know, no wars or anything like this. And certainly by the time Hesiod was writing about this, uh, Greece knew wars. Um, and it fits with the archaeological record, too. You know, we do find a lot of weapons from about uh, 2,500, 2,000 B.C. Uh, forward. But before about 3,000 B.C., you know, we find virtually no weapons in any of these ancient cultures, which is really quite amazing. Um, also, there's uh, we found some something called Terra Preta do Indio, this amazing uh, soil in Brazil, which when farmers come across it today, they get very, very excited because they know that they can they can grow papaya or uh, cash crops in it, and they'll they'll get twice the yield in fruit in about half the time with the plant. And it's a dark soil, and it's, uh, they know it's man-made because it's always uh, uh, has bits of pottery in it. And uh, the problem is it, Cornell University has been studying it, and they still do not know how to recreate it today. Uh, all we know is that it dates back to, you know, some long-lost civilization. So there's... There's evidence of a, of a very large, very peaceful uh, civilization that existed on Earth long before the Dark Ages. And, and you know, I try to uh, comprehend what it's like, and somebody was reminding me the other day that, you know, if we went back to somebody just 100, 150 years ago on a farm, and we show up with our uh, cell phones and, and our present-day knowledge, and we say, hey, you know, you can use this little device to, uh, to look at animation. Uh, that would scare them. And we can talk to people in China. They might say, well, why do you, you know, do you speak Chinese? And, you know, we have rovers on Mars, and we can clone your farm animals. And everything we say to this fellow would just, uh, he couldn't figure out how we could do these things. It would sound like magic. And some of the tales of the last, you know, higher ages do sound like magic, too. There's, you know, wizardry and levitation and clairvoyance. Even in the Bible, Peter, the, uh, the story of, of Babel, you know, they're, they're building the buildings, uh, the towers, uh, ziggurats there. And so we can date this to about, you know, five, 6,000 years ago, close to 3,000 B.C. We know that's coming down from the clairvoyant telepathic times uh, and 
you know, Genesis says God confuses the tongues. And writing starts about that time. You, you no longer are communicating directly. Uh, and so when you look at history with this mindset of what the different ages might be like, you really have to to keep a very open mind, and and that's the only way you start making sense out of this myth and folklore about higher ages. And, Walter, you, you, you bring a group of people together through the CPAC conference to actually talk about all of this. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we do, and they know much more about some of these areas than I do. So, uh, yeah, this year's CPAC, we have Robert Schock. He's a, a geologist with Boston University, famed for redating the Sphinx. Uh, he thinks it's much older than, uh, than we've been taught in school. And he's just returning from Gobekli Tepe, Turkey, an amazing site over there that actually dates to the last golden age. Um, the only reason we have something left is is that uh, this site was purposely buried. But, yeah, he'll be at CPAC, which is the conference of procession and ancient knowledge we hold each year. This year is in Sedona. And um, I can go through some of the other speakers, but uh, your guests can also simply look it up at cpaconline.com. That's cpaconline.com. And, and what, what are the dates for the conference? Uh, it's September 30th and October 1st and 2nd, and Sedona is really beautiful. You know, in addition to uh, hearing all these different perspectives about the higher age and and you know these trends in the yugas, uh, we get out and do some hiking and have some fun. So you couldn't be in a better place in the world actually for that type of conference, could you? Yeah, it's, it's nice. And for people who want to connect with your work, Walter, what was what is your website? Um, the binary research institute dot uh, org is our our main uh, site on the you know all the astronomical research and that sort of thing. We also have a little one uh, thegreatyear.com, dot com which uh, talks about some of these uh, different ages and uh, they can find our our books and uh, film and things through that site. I don't know how uh, how familiar you are with with the landscape zodiac that I've just been talking about. We have about a minute left. Uh, do you have any comments on on the use of the landscape zodiac for raising our vibration consciousness and awareness? Uh, only sort of a general comment, and that is, uh, our ancient ancestors must have known that we were going to decline. You know, it's like summer and winter or the day. You know, you can predict things, so to speak. And they probably set in motion things to try to hang on to the higher vibrations. And I think that might be the purpose about some of these megalithic structures. And we'll talk about that at the conference. And uh, the reason before 1500 B.C. so many things are aligned with the equinox and solstice, you know, there's, they're aware of subtle energies. And I have to think that the uh, landscape zodiac has something to do with that. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. And, and, and this, uh, this idea, this notion that the ancients were actually trying to help us through this dark mire and, and bring us back to the light by leaving us these structures and these opportunities uh, that when we were ready to awaken, we could actually find them and start working with them. It's, it's pretty magical, isn't it? 
It is, and it's even embedded in our language and in our clock. Our little our wristwatch is a microcosm of the great year. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Walter, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I've really enjoyed it. I hope we'll get the chance to chat again sometime in the future. You've made a lot of things really, really clear that, that I needed to understand uh, fully, and I, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. Love the work you're doing. Oh, thank you very much. Any, any final comments? Oh, you know, I hope to see as many people uh, as possible at the uh, conference because besides all the experts that we have there, we hear many interesting things through the audience. So. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. You need a conscious audience to make it all flow beautifully, hey? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> good. Well, good luck with that, and I, and I really appreciate this. Thanks so much. Okay, all the best. All the best now. Well, I think uh, Walt has given us a real insight today into, into where we are in the world and what is happening around us and why it's happening. And so I think we can move forward with, with real confidence in terms of what we're doing in the world. And uh, next week, what I've decided to do is actually do my own show. And I am going to be talking about the information that has led me to uh, understand the way in which this landscape zodiac uh, works and, and how it connects into the megalithic sites and the ley lines of the land and the zodiacal archetypes to assist us in uh, our awakening process for us to trans transform and transmute beyond the limitations of the lower human ego and all the issues that reside in each of the 12 archetypes, whichever way you look at it. So I think it's going to be a really interesting show, and I hope you will join me next week for my, my own show. It would be nice for you to hear me speak rather than ask questions. Uh, do go to www.myheartcenteredjourney.com, and I hope you have a wonderful week. It's Peter Tongue for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. found this week's show to be enlightening and inspiring. Please join host Peter Tung for another edition of Awakening to Conscious Creation next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, Noon Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network.